Hi, and welcome to the very first episode of Unjustly. I'm your host, Sandy, and this is my co-host, Stephanie. Hello. Thank you for joining us as we explore the social injustices in our criminal justice system. We plan on bringing you the perfect blend of true crime stories, wrongful convictions, potentially innocent convicts, punishments that don't fit the crime, and other social injustice issues. So what makes us qualified to talk about this? (laughs) Absolutely nothing. Nothing. (laughs) Uh, Steph and I met in college and we originally worked together as college advisors uh, for a high school. And then we were going to the same college, UCSD, majoring in sociology, the Mm -hmm. both of us. I believe your minor, no, your concentration was in... Law and society. So you're qualified, more qualified than me. Eh. My Mm. concentration was in science and medicine, so... Super qualified. A little bit (laughs) less qualified than you. Um, But we were also college roommates for about two years, Mm -hmm. and it... Because both of us were sociology majors, it seems like we talked a lot about social injustices when we were in the dorm rooms and uh, late nights, I think random conversations would come up and it's something that you and I would talk about a lot. So I feel the most comfortable speaking to you about all these things. I feel like that's always been kind of like a natural conversation between us given our education and now our friendship. And just like our um, common interest in having movie nights revolve around scary movies or like true crime documentaries or going to sleep to FBI files. Mm -hmm. And so I think it just came up for both of us and it just made sense that we might try something like this and hope for the best. So we've been talking about murder for about 10 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a lot of murder. It's a lot of murder. It's fine. Uh, So it's 2020 now, and apart from COVID-19, it's been a big year of protesting for injustices. A lot of topics like racism, um, systemic racism, and reform are trending. So I hope with some of the stories that we bring up, uh, we'll be able to shed some light on some of these issues. And Stephanie and I will be taking turns every week um, telling our own story. And so my first story is going to be about the Fairbanks Four. Had you heard about them prior? Not a once. I have not either. So I, I mean, we both consider ourselves like true crime buffs. Yeah. Right. Um, I had not heard about the story. So I came across this case. Originally, I wanted to do the West Memphis Three because I'm completely obsessed with that case. And so I wanted it to be my first one. Um, But I looked up the Instagram hashtag and I came across a picture of these four men and it was like indigenous men they were native american um and i didn't recognize them so i clicked on it because i was curious and the post said something like um this is the case of the fairbanks four no one's heard about it because they're not white like the west memphis three and that's how it came into the hashtag of that um so immediately i was intrigued and i started doing some research on it and realized that there wasn't a whole lot about this and i was confused about it because i feel like we're in this generation of everyone's obsessed with true crime and um a lot of like wrongful conviction stuff which is what mostly what we'll be talking about during this podcast but um they didn't even have their own wikipedia page Mm -hmm. and i feel like almost all big cases has a wikipedia page and this case in particular there was a little excerpt underneath the alaska innocence project wikipedia page So in order for me to find all the little details about the case, I had to pay for a subscription to the local Fairbanks, Alaska newspaper. Keep the newspaper alive. Subscribe. 
I agree. Um, I didn't agree before until I realized how much it actually helps. But also, if anyone needs information on up-to-date news from Fairbanks, just hit me up because I have the ins because <laughs> I pay for it now. Um, but the only articles I was able to find outside of paying for them was like the end portion of what happened, not like the beginning. There was very little about it. So it was really frustrating. So my sources from the story came from the Fairbanks Daily's News Miner, mustreadalaska.com, tananachiefs.org, alaskapublic.org, and an article from the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights and good old Wikipedia. Very little from Wikipedia. Like I said, they don't have their own page. It's fine. Maybe eventually they will one day. Um, so on October 11th, 1997 in Fairbanks, Alaska at 2.50 a.m., police respond to a scene where 15-year-old John Hartman is lying on the street beaten and unconscious. So the day prior, it was the distribution of the Alaska Permanent Fund dividend where qualified Alaskan residents received money from a percentage of oil revenues that's meant to benefit current and all future generations of Alaskans. And during this time, a lot of people go out downtown to party, shop, have some fun. The downside to the dividend is um, a lot of increased uh, criminal activity. Mm -hmm. Uh, substance abuse and something called rolling where people would assault someone in order to steal their dividend money. Okay. That's some crazy shit. <laughs> that is pretty crazy. After midnight, the Fairbanks police were overwhelmed with assaults, robberies, and drunk driving. So much so that off-duty personnel were asked to come back into the work to help. Early that morning, the call came in about a boy lying with his body half on the street and half on the sidewalk with his pants down to his ankles. He was barely breathing. Medics arrived first and made note of his injuries and possible risk of hypothermia as it was 8 degrees out that night. Police pinpoint that the assault on Hartman occurred around 1.35 a.m. Hartman was taken to the hospital where he was in a coma until he died the following day. The Fairbanks community is very small and they were outraged and tired of the continuous violence and were putting pressure on the police department to do something about it. Two days later, they had four suspects arrested on extremely questionable evidence and two confessions. The suspects were indigenous men, were George Fries, who was 20, Eugene Vent, who was 17, Kevin Pease, who was 19, and Marvin Roberts, who was also 19. So how did we end up with these suspects? Suspect number one, <laughs> Eugene Vent. That night, police responded to a disturbance called in by the clerk at the Alaska Motor Inn. When police arrived, everyone fled on foot, at 4.30 a.m., they were able to apprehend Vent. The motel clerk, who admits to being known to embellish stories, had previously told police he was attacked and he maced the assailant. Vent had no traces of mace. But the clerk was now claiming that Vent had pulled a gun on him and had seen him earlier with a man wearing camouflage, which police said matched what Hartman was wearing. This wouldn't have been true, as Hartman was in the taxi at 1.15 a.m. on the other side of town where the assault happened but police took Vent in for questioning. Vent, who was extremely intoxicated, waived his right to a lawyer and to have a parent present. He was underage at the time. His interrogation began <clears throat> around 5 a.m. and lasted 11 hours. Detectives lied to Vent, saying his bloody footprint was found at the crime scene. He denies involvement for hours and requests to go home multiple times and to eat something, but was denied it. Detective Ring kept asking how his footprint got there. Vent finally said, well, I guess I was there. 
After giving Vent more details related to the crime and mentioning other potential accomplices, such as Kevin Pease, Vent said, you're starting to make me think like I killed somebody, man. You're trying to fill my brain with things I didn't do. After continued coaching from the detective, Vent agreed that he probably hit and kicked Hartman and had blacked out regarding the details, saying, I don't remember beating anybody up. Vent eventually took full blame for hitting and kicking Hartman, but claimed that he did it alone. When Rain asked, and you're responsible for putting something up this guy's rectum? Vent said, I wouldn't even think of doing that. Ring pointed out that then others had to have been involved. And that's when Vent started naming the other names of accomplices he had heard earlier. Suspect number two, George Freese. <clears throat> At 3.30 p.m., Freese goes to the ER complaining of foot pain. He said he had gotten in a fight the previous night but couldn't remember any details because he was extremely intoxicated. The nurse that was tending to Freese was the same nurse who was in charge of Hartman. The nurse calls the police to investigate a possible connection. After police looked at the bruising on Hartman's face and compared it to the bottom of Freese's boot, saying that it was a perfect match and would be taking him in for questioning. After hours of using the same interrogation techniques as with Vent by feeding him information of the crime and lying about evidence, although he continuously said he had no recollection of the night, Freese gave a confession and included the other three suspects. Suspect number three, Kevin Pease. On the night of the assault, Pease's mother called 911 to report that her son had assaulted her and was tearing up the home. Pease already had history of armed robbery, destroying property in a cop car, and drug usage. Pease eluded police and went to a friend's house. The friend claimed that Pease was shivering in his sleep, which prosecutors later used as evidence of his guilt. Police were looking for Pease, and Pease's girlfriend suggested he use her as an alibi to avoid getting in trouble. But when she found out he was potentially a suspect for a murder case, she admitted it was a lie. Police used that as evidence that Pease did commit the crime. During his interrogation, Pease maintained his innocence and said he knew nothing about the incident. Suspect number four, Marvin Roberts. Police believe that a getaway car was used after Hartman was assaulted. Skid marks on the road were also found. Roberts was seen giving rides to multiple people that night, so police decided to bring him in for questioning. Again, the same interrogation tactics were used by Detective Ring. Roberts was told that his license plate was seen near the crime scene and that his tires were already scientifically proven to match the skid marks on the street. Of course, none of that was true. Roberts maintained his innocence and said he remembers everything from that night as he was sober. Roberts said he had crossed paths with other suspects throughout the night but had not hung out with them or gave them rides anywhere. Police did not believe him. So let's look at the evidence. The night of the assault, a woman named Melanie goes outside for a cigarette and hears someone getting beat up and saying, help me. She then heard a deeper voice that sounded older, angry, and drunk. Melanie wasn't able to understand what the deeper voice was saying, but said he had a native accent. It was later questioned in trial how she was able to distinguish a native accent without hearing any exact words, but she claimed she just could. Around midnight, a man believed he saw three black teenagers running from a man sprawled on the sidewalk. The boys fled in a grayish car about the size of an older four-door Ford. Roberts's car was a blue hatchback. Warrants led to finding an unloaded gun and rounds in Robert's car. Vent had allegedly held a gun to the motel clerk that night. However, a gun was not found on him when he was picked up by police. The gun in Roberts's car did not match the description the motel clerk described, and the gun actually belonged to Roberts's stepdad. A bloody t-shirt and marijuana plants were found in Pease's home. 
Tess concluded that the blood was his own and the marijuana plants belonged to his mother. <laughs> Samples from the alleged getaway car and items from the victim were taken for examination, but when the test results came back, it showed that nothing tied the suspects to the victim or even Roberts's car. A hair found on one of Freese's boots was non-Caucasian, so it couldn't have been Hartman's. Roberts' 1992 Dodge Shadow Hatchback fit the general dimensions of the skid marks, but so did dozens of similar-sized cars. Photos of the skid marks couldn't positively match his car's tires. At this point, there's no physical evidence that connects any of the four suspects to Hartman's murder other than Freese's boot potentially matching the bruises on Hartman's face, potential skid marks matching from Robert's tires that appear to be inconclusive, and a woman claiming to hear a native accent while someone was getting beat up. The DA decides to continue with prosecuting the four men anyway based on the two confessions and would look to find other ways to prove their guilt. Detectives on the case fail to look for any other possible suspects. The trial. On October 21st, 1997, Vent, Freeze, Roberts, and Pease pled not guilty to murder and sexual assault charges, but prosecution was delayed more than a year due to legal battles over the admissibility of the two confessions, the failure to inform jurors of possible alibis, and issues arising from the pretrial publicity and family connections. Again, this is a small area. There's a lot of villages around surrounding them and they're all connected in some way, or a lot of them are connected somehow. Um, so of course, news of all this got around very fast. So to ensure fairness of the jury selection, the trial was moved to Anchorage, Alaska. Originally, Vent and Freeze was said to be testifying against the other two defendants, but they later decided to stand trial instead of taking a plea deal for their testimony. And they were now claiming that their confessions were coerced. In February, 1999, Freese was the first to stand trial Ben's trial began that July, and Roberts and Pease were tried together in August. Evidence that all the trials were riddled with incomplete information and many professionals in favor of the defendant's innocence were barred from even testifying. The first display of evidence used was a picture of Hartman's bruising on his face and an overlay of a boot impression from Freese's shoe that night. This was problematic as a picture can be distorted and manipulated to fit what would look similar to the bruising patterns. The medical examiner said in an interview that there was not enough characteristics to distinguish that this one boot made the marks or even that it was an obvious boot print or pattern, but he left that out of his lab reports. The marks yielded nothing identifying the number of assailants, specific footwear involved, or even the shoe sizes. A former chief criminologist testifying for Freese's defense said that the victim's bruises should have been photographed next to a ruler to help evaluate skin distortion and the curves of the face. He also speculated that either the boot or the face photo was enlarged to make the evidence look credible. The next series of evidence presented at trial were snitch testimonies. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Recent studies have shown that these types of testimonies are very common at trials of people wrongfully convicted. The Fairbanks Daily News Miner pointed out a 2005 Northwestern University study of 111 people released from death row through DNA testing found that 45% of the cases had featured false testimony from informants, which was the largest common factor among the trials. So first we have Angela Harmon, a friend of Hartman's family. After being arrested for a probation violation, she reached out to police to say that Pease told her, we took the punk's money. Then we have Franklin Mueller, a 19-year-old connected to dozens of suspected car thefts, testified that he heard Vent uh, talking about the crime with Freeze and Roberts while they were incarcerated. 
After his testimony, Mueller had one of his unrelated criminal charges reduced to two counts, and he was never prosecuted for an alleged assault. Joshua Bradshaw, a 16-year-old facing a felony sex assault charge, said he heard Vent say that he hadn't meant to kick Hartman, but meant to actually attack his friend, Chris Stone. After Bradshaw's testimony, his initial charge of first-degree sex assault of a minor was reduced, and he pleaded guilty to attempted sexual assault in the second degree. He was found to have penetrated a five-year-old boy, but he was only sentenced to about a third of a seven-year sentence, and the judge cited that it was due to assisting authorities. Chris Kelly, Hartman's 21-year-old brother who had been arrested on warrants, was never called as a witness, but told police that Vent had apologized to him, saying, I didn't do nothing. It was the other guys that did it. I didn't even want to be there. John Heffel Sr., a 38-year-old who had a long criminal rap sheet, testified that Peace told him, I was fucked up and it was bad. However, prison logs confirmed that Heffel and Pease were held in separate areas of the prison and their paths couldn't have crossed like Heffel claimed. Finally, we have Arla Olson. The same night that Hartman was assaulted, there was a robbery near where a wedding was taking place. Police have believed that the two were connected. Olson testified that he saw a robbery take place a block away in the dark after a long night of heavy drinking and claimed that he could ID all four defendants. Olson said he couldn't see their faces but recognized their haircuts and posture. When being questioned about it on the stand, he stated that if you saw Michael Jordan from far away, you would still recognize that it was him. <laughs> the first two trials, Olson was vague on how far away he was from the robbery and said that maybe he was 100 yards away. At the third trial, police measured the distance to be 183 yards away, which is almost two football fields. Jeffrey Loftus, a psychology professor and visual perception expert, said that the chances of recognizing someone's face farther than 200 feet away in ideal conditions, such as during the day and if the person was sober, was essentially nil. Keep in mind that this was middle of the night. Olsen was extremely drunk. Um, the professor also claims that body recognition is not as exact as facial recognition. Jurors decided to leave the courthouse to do a field experiment on credibility of recognizing someone in that distance. The jurors did not tell the judge or the lawyers of their experiment, which held clear legal implications. After asking for a retrial, a judge said the jurors engaged in a sensible effort to make their decision so a retrial was not granted. The issue actually comes up multiple times after the trial in hopes of a retrial, but was shot down multiple times. So Vice actually did like a short 30 minute clip about the Fairbanks Four. I saw it on YouTube and um, they showed where the wedding was and then where the robbery took place. And there is absolutely no way you could see. see anything. What, yeah, exactly. And this was during the day when they were filming it. And I can only imagine like when I'm drunk, <laughs> I... I have to squint my eyes to like see someone that's like a few feet away. There's absolutely no way that I can recognize, even if it was someone like you, like yeah. I know your posture, I know your haircut, just like them, but I don't think I could recognize you from two football fields away, drunk in the dark. No, if I'm not wearing my glasses, I'm lucky to recognize Tim <laughs> across the way, you know, like there's just no way two football fields away, I can see anything. Mm -hmm. No. It's true. Yeah. So let's discuss the actual robbery. Because friends of even the victim um, and the victim himself, Dayton, all recounted different stories that Olsen uh, had said. First of all, Olsen identified Roberts' blue car after a picture of it was shown to him. However, Dayton, the victim, recalled a tan or white car. 
So at 1.30 a.m., um, a girl at the wedding told her friend that she couldn't go to the restroom with her because she was about to dance with our defendant, Marvin Roberts. At 1.35 a.m., the 911 call log indicates that Dayton's robbery was reported, which actually coincides with the time frame of Hartman's assault. News of the robbery was being told at the dance hall and reached a table where Roberts was reported to be sitting at, which means that Roberts has an alibi. A woman from the wedding said she called police soon after Roberts' arrest to say that there's no way he could have left, beaten somebody to death, and then come back like nothing happened. She believes that police were receiving similar calls from other wedding guests because he asked her if she was related to him. The woman noticed the police's attitude changed when she stated that she was connected to him through her grandfather in another village. The cop told her that they all stick together. This alibi was thrown out and ignored by police because they already had confessions from the two other suspects. Later on, Olson gave conflicting statements and interviews and went back and forth on recanting his trial testimony during his time in and out of jail. An expert on false confessions was not allowed to testify at the trials. All four defendants were convicted in 1999 and sentenced in February of 2000. All maintained their innocence. Fries was given 97 years, Vent was given 38 years, Pease was given 64 years, and Roberts was given 33 years. At Pease's sentencing, the judge told him that it's a question of when the homicide was going to occur, not if. Sounds like a little bit of bias to me. Um, at the crime scene, Hartman was found with underwear on but pants down to his ankles. The nurse said she suspected sexual assault, but the autopsy report only mentioned a faint circular bruise near his rectum. Both Freeze and Vent were convicted of sexual assault. However, Pease and Roberts were acquitted of the same charge after reports of sexual assault were challenged. A year later, when the forensics were examined, it was noted that the pants were sized for a much larger waist than Hartman's, so it may have just been that his pants had fallen down during the attack. Right. Mm -hmm. So the aftermath. After the convictions of the Fairbanks Four, um, Fairbanks was left divided. Some believe that the four were guilty without a doubt, but many of the regional tribal groups were angry and held frequent protests and discussions at their resolutions. The Fairbanks Daily News Miner reported that in 2001, the Council of Tanana called for an unbiased justice and said, the racist attitude prevalent in Alaska's legal, judicial, and public communities created a true conspiracy that has deprived these young men of their freedom. Many natives were left angry with the stereotypes that were thrown around during the trials. Shirley Lee, the executive director of Fairbanks Native Association, stated that assumptions were made about Native people in general sticking together. This was in response to the prosecutor's comparison of when Romans came looking for Spartacus. The slaves stepped forward declaring, I am Spartacus, one <laughs> after another. He stated that this is what the Native witnesses who were giving alibis for the defendants were doing. During a 2003 appellate hearing, a Native elder stated that he believed if the boys had been white, they would have got off. In 2008, the Tanana Chiefs Conference, which I'm not going to call TCC, reached out to the Alaskan Innocence Project to discuss the Fairbanks Four case. And in September of that year, the Alaskan Innocence Project began their preliminary investigations and officially takes on the case a few months later. In April 2011, a former classmate of the Fairbanks Four stated that in 1997, John Wallace confessed to killing Hartman. We got some new players in the game. The a, second, a second classmate was able to corroborate this confession. In December 2011, William Holmes, a California inmate who used to live in Fairbanks, 
writes a confession that he, Jason Wallace, and a few other friends had killed Hartman. The letter was faxed to the Fairbanks Police Department, and in 2013, he files a sworn statement. The Alaskan Innocence Project files for a review of the case. A lot of legal back and forth occurs about what to do with the case. But in 2014, they discover that the Fairbanks police knew about Holmes's confession for a few years, but never even looked into it. So the TCC asked that the Fairbanks mayor, John Eberhardt, join them in a request for a federal review of the case and the mayor accepts. Okay, so we need to take a second and talk about these new guys, the suspects and their confessions. Um, William Holmes and Jason Wallace were living in Fairbanks at the time of the murder and even attended the same high school as Hartman. Both were heavily involved in drug dealing and had a long rap sheet of criminal activity even at that time. So because of this, it's speculated that their statements have some credibility issues. In 2002, Wallace and Holmes committed drug-related murders and were convicted. Wallace testified against Holmes, which gave him a heavier sentence. Um, so one theory is that Holmes made up the story of killing Hartman in retaliation against Wallace for his testimony. And even though Wallace was offered immunity for the Hartman murder, he continued to deny any involvement with his death. Holmes speculates he did not want to admit to it as it may affect his future chances for parole, which makes sense. Yeah. In 2015, Holmes sits down for an on-air interview stating that they need to let those boys out. They're innocent. His story in the interview remained exactly the same from his sworn statement in 2011. So remember in the beginning of the story when I said that there is a man uh, <laughs> who had reported seeing um, like three or four black teens running from a man sprawled mm -hmm. on the street? I couldn't find any direct connection, but to me it sounds the same because John Wallace and Holmes and their friends were black mm. teens at the time that it happened. So it's my assumption, um, but I couldn't positively make that connection. Yeah. Um, in 2015, Roberts is released from prison on early parole. In that October, the Fairbanks Four returned to court for a post-conviction relief hearing. During the hearing, Alaskan state troopers testified that the case had been poorly investigated. Arlo Olson comes back to take the stand and recants his testimony, stating he was manipulated into telling a story that the detective um, and the prosecutor had him memorize transcripts. This is unrelated, but Olson ends up committing suicide in 2017 after being arrested for kidnap and assault. The Alaska Federation of Natives full board of directors and tribal leaders from across the U.S. stood together in protest, asking the governor of Alaska to free the four men. They held up four fingers, which became the symbol of the Fairbanks Four. Mm -hmm. On December 17, 2015, the Fairbanks Four signed a deal calling for their immediate release and erasing their convictions. But here's the catch. Part of the deal was that the four men had to admit that the state had probable cause to arrest them mm. when the murder happened and were not allowed to sue the government. Again, the community was divided, with some still believing that they were guilty. Some believe the governor helped free the men to help him get reelected. Mm -hmm. Others believe justice for the Fairbanks Four was somewhat met. However, they felt the men were given the short end of the stick by not allowing them to get compensation for losing out on 18 years of their lives. Yeah. In January 2020, the Ninth Circuit ruled that the Fairbanks Four can, in fact, sue the city of Fairbanks, Alaska for malicious prosecution. And they are now in the process to do so. Uh, so during my research of this case, 
especially under articles regarding their release, I saw a ton of comments of people um, still saying that they were guilty. And it was oh, yeah. to this day, it was still 2020. Um, some people were saying that the Fairbanks four killed Hartman are now getting paid for it, um, that it's disturbing how murderers are getting awards for what they did. Um, and just the list of negative comments was going on and on. While on the other hand, uh, Native Alaskans were extremely proud of the work that they had done for these men. So clearly there's still a lot of division mm -hmm. regarding this case to this day. So quick history lesson. Let's talk about racism in Alaska. In the 1700s, Russian settlers came to Alaska to establish the seal fur trade. Uh, when they arrived, they enslaved the local tribes, forced the men to hunt, and they took women and children hostage. They were forced to adapt to their culture and attend their churches. In 1867, the U.S. bought Alaska, and although they abolished slavery, there's documented cases of wealthy families purchasing young Native girls to do their housework. As Americans began moving into Alaska, they failed to consider the rights of the Native people. Uh, they ignored Native traditions and took from them while providing little or nothing in return, which sounds pretty much the same as, as all of the U.S. Yeah. Uh, in 1959, Alaska became the 49th state, and today white people make up the majority of the population. Native Alaskans make up about 15% of the population, and it's the largest minority group. Uh, during a community forum in 2001, Georgianne Lincoln, an Alaska senator, stated, Indifference to a basic fiber of Alaska Native people, indifference to the survival of the communities and culture result in a feeling of powerlessness and hopelessness. When communities fall under this gray cloud, there are a multitude of side effects, education deficits, psychological depression, high rates of suicide, substance abuse, uh, violent crimes, and finally incarceration. In January 2001, three white teens drove to Anchorage with paintball guns and frozen ammunition to target natives. While videotaping the events, they shot multiple natives. One of them was in the face at very close range. Jesus. One native man who was intoxicated at the time was shot by the boys, and he flagged down a police officer to report what the boys were doing. The cop instead arrested the victim for disorderly conduct, and he spent 10 days in jail. The boys were eventually caught and the video was confiscated. News of this crime reached the lower 48 states and people were outraged. However, the native Alaskans said this was nothing new and very common in the state. Unfortunately, around the same time, there was a series of attacks on native women who were being kidnapped and raped in Anchorage, which was also believed to be motivated by racism. Mm -hmm. According to Wikipedia... The incident inspired Governor Tony Knowles to appoint a commission on tolerance, which created 100 recommendations for improving race relations in the state of Alaska. The list included more new hate crime laws, uh, increased funding for schools and rural villages, and added new verses to the state's song to recognize contributions of Aboriginal natives. So there's definitely been a long history of racism and division that still have effects on Native Alaskans today. And by no means am I trying to reduce hundreds of years of racism in a very short and simple paragraph, um, but I did think it was worth mentioning, at yeah. least because I feel like it was related to the case somewhat. So what's your verdict on the Fairbanks 4 stuff? So I don't have a verdict, but I have thoughts, <laughs> if that's okay. Let's hear them. Um, I think it's obviously like what we see in a lot of cases like this, where um, it's just people who happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. So that's basically what I think happened with the Fairbanks Four, um, when there is kind of a clear, there's clear suspects in the case who, you know, not only confessed but 
later on were kind of back and forth with one another with one of them saying they didn't do it because they didn't want to affect their parole hearing right mm-hmm. so i think that's pretty clear like there's four people who who just happened to be there and there's two people who were there and confessed to it but i think it just brings you know a bigger bigger like more light to a situation that we see over and over again with um, you know, people of color, especially young people of color who um, don't are scared of authority and mm-hmm. are scared to say no or scared to request a lawyer or scared to request for their parents to come in or their parents are working because they're working parents and they can't be there at the time. So I think that those are probably bigger issues than like who did it because I think it's pretty clear who did it. Um, but I definitely think it's it's important to draw attention to the division that there is in Alaska because we see that with indigenous people not just in Alaska but all over so I think that's my thought that I definitely think it was I forgot the names Holmes and Wallace yeah I think it was definitely Holmes and Wallace who you know who who did it but I think it's important that we do bring this conversation to light and that we do talk about the fact that even though this was 20, 30 years ago when this happened. Yeah, 1997. 1997. Like, it's a conversation that's still very much happening. Like, this mm-hmm. is still happening today, especially today. Um, so those are my thoughts. I don't know what else to say. Yeah, especially, I mean, the in 2020 when in January, it was just this year, it was just a few months ago, and there's still people commenting on the news articles saying, no, they're absolutely guilty, 100%. Like, mm-hmm. you guys are letting murderers free and all these things. And we know from so many other cases that false confessions, you know, or coerced confessions is a thing. And when you think of these young boys, like you said, they're probably would have been scared of authority anyway, but uh, some of them were drunk when they were Mm -hmm. brought in. Um, It's a long night, 5 a.m. I mean, if someone's nagging you for 11 hours about Mm -hmm. something, you'd probably be like, yeah, okay, whatever, whatever you say, like, I'm hungry, I'm tired. Just get out of the situation. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. I need to get out of here. So, and I completely understand people being skeptical of the new confessions now, the Mm -hmm. other two guys, but I don't think that should be an implication that these four men had to have done it then because, you know, I can't believe these new two new people because they're criminals themselves. And to see that there's so much division over it to this day and it probably is is like a division in like generations right like Mm -hmm. where it's like the old the older generations living in alaska who were there at the time and saw this all happen we're living in a completely different world where we still live in a very racist world and Mm -hmm. where racism still exists but i think a lot more people are starting to open their eyes and starting to see that it's not something that existed 40, 50, 60 years ago. It's something that's still going on. But these people who are commenting are probably people whose mentality hasn't changed Mm -hmm. and are so just stuck in their ways, unfortunately, that they have the time to go onto these articles and like leave these comments, you know, instead of doing actual research and seeing why these four, you know, individuals weren't, how how they couldn't be the ones to do it as opposed to, you know seeing what's actually happening so yeah it's crappy i like it was a good story i am glad that i came across it because i really don't believe that it's been given um the recognition that it should get so i do have a call to action 
Um, if you want to help people like the Fairbanks Four, you can donate to the Alaska Innocence Project at alaskainnocence.org. But there's also a ton of Innocence Project groups all over the U.S. Uh, so if you visit innocencenetwork.org, you can find a group near you. And I'm sure we'll be covering many of these groups throughout all of our episodes. Um, so we'll, we'll bring up each one as they come along. So to our justice crew, what do you guys think? Was justice finally served? I know that um, we somewhat have justice served in the sense that the Fairbanks Four were able to be released and now they have the ability to sue, um, but they did lose out on 18 years of their lives and we still have a victim who doesn't have his own justice. Mm-hmm. We still have Hartman um, who now his case is just kind of up in the air or forgotten about. Forgotten. I don't think, I, yeah, I don't think they're going to go any further with that because it's been so long. There's, um, and state troopers, the Alaska state troopers have admitted that they don't have much to go off of now because they didn't do much research at that time then. because they, they had the four suspects right off the bat and mm-hmm. didn't look more into it. So, so if you guys have any questions, comments, or corrections, you can email us at unjustlypodcast at gmail.com or you can DM us on Instagram at unjustlypodcast. I'm sure we'll have a Facebook and Twitter up and running eventually, but right now it's just email and Instagram. Um, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and listen in every Monday. Have we decided on that? Eh, whatever day it is, it just is. <laughs> we'll let you know. But listen yeah. weekly. <laughs> um, if you jo- enjoyed our show, leave us a review. Only nice ones, please. If you hate it, just forget I even mentioned this. If you don't have Ignore something nice part. to say, don't say anything at all. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> also, I want to give a quick shout out to Flip from Neighbor Food Watch Podcast <laughs> because he helped us set all this up. I don't think we would have gotten this far if he no hadn't have <laughs> taken the time to help us through this. And he's right here next to us for our first episode to make sure that we don't mess this up. Because if anyone's going to mess this up, it would be me and Steph. Mm-hmm. So Flip has been here making sure that we are doing well. So thank you, Flip. Thank you. (laughs) So join us on our next episode where Steph will be bringing another wrongful conviction story. Yes. All right. Stay tuned. Thank you. I won't tell you who it is, so you tune in. Thank you. Bye. (laughs) Bye. (laughs)